Welcome to the FoxCast. I'm Sonny Fox, and this week we have Howie Mandel. What a great, great story, and Howie tells it all. Howie came from Canada, ended up accidentally on St. Elsewhere, and went on and on and on. An incredible guy with OCD, which he talks about too. This is an amazing conversation. I think you're going to enjoy. So here's Howie Mandel. We're glad you're here. I'm uh, glad to be here. But you know, I was Googling you like we do all the time before we do a special. And I was thinking, you know, is this is this guy an actor? He's like a, 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 he does things for kids. He's a comedian. He's a television host. And you wear a lot of hats. That's why I've shaved my head. Because... <laughs> It just makes them all fit easier. I, I don't think I, I wear a lot of hats. I think I'm just a guy looking for work, you know, wow. like we all are in this business. So whatever seems to come my way at that particular moment, I grab it. You know, it's not and, – and anything that I've done, I didn't really head head out to do. You know, I came out here, obviously, and I say out here to the States. I'm Canadians. But I came out to Los Angeles in 1978 to be a uh, – uh, I was um, – I actually had uh, – these novelty toys that I was trying to ship up to Canada. And I happened to be staying at a hotel, which was right next door to the comedy store. Uh-huh. And I thought, oh, I'd heard about this on television. I'd seen comics uh, that uh, Johnny Carson had said, oh, we saw him the other night at the comedy store. I said, let's go see some big stars. So I went uh, down next door, and as luck would have it, it was uh, amateur night. And my friends thought it would be funny because I was 3,000 miles away from home to make a fool of myself. <laughs> and I went up, and I signed up, and I went up and did... Uh, I'd like to say my act, but I didn't have one. And Did you have uh, the rubber I, glove back then? I always had the rubber gloves because I have OCD and I can't I don't like to touch things. So I carried I carried the rubber glove with me. <laughs> At that particular night I didn't pull it over my head, but that just came you know, pulling the rubber glove on my head came really close to that night. This is just because in, in lieu of an act or in lieu of material, <laughs> I would just pull things out. I pulled it over my head. I started breathing. The audience roared. I thought, this is material. This is how you get material. <laughs> You're just at a loss. But it was I was always at a loss. That first night, people were giggling, I guess, at my uh, nervousness, and I was asking them, what, what, what do you, what? And that got a laugh. I really didn't understand what people were laughing at, and that became like a little bit of a catchphrase for that at, at that time. <laughs> a producer in the audience that had a comedy game show called Make Me Laugh. His name was George Foster. And he said, do you uh, you want to do television? I thought, this is kind of ho- hokey. This is like L.A. Yeah, I want to do television. Right. And I thought uh, it was, he said, well, come to my office tomorrow and uh, we'll talk about it. And he gave me his card. And it was at KTLA in in California. And it was, uh, I went to his office the next day and he had that show with Bobby Van. Do you remember that show? Oh, yeah. As a matter you, of fact, when you, you mentioned had, the rubber glove as a prop, it reminded me, what was his name? Bruce Baum or? 
Bruce Baum was Baby Man. Right. Mike Binder was on the show. I did my first show. I did with Mike Binder, Pat Cooper, and Baby Man. Was, uh, <laughs> there's a Gallagher there's a came out of that show. Yes. <laughs> so, and 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 that's what. Uh, and and he hired me to do the show. And they did five. They did it. It was in a strip. You did five shows. You taped in one day. And I flew back. And I had a great story to tell about my vacation to Los Angeles and as luck would have it they started to air and I started getting calls and one of the first calls I got was from Dick Sean who was a oh my god comic in his first right and he was doing a pilot for NBC and I came back down and he had me in the pilot the pilot never aired and while I was there I did Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas and Merv Griffin uh, aired and then Diana Ross saw me and hired me as her opening act I didn't have an act <laughs> and uh it was just uh, she. That's amazing. It's like your vacation turned into a career. Absolutely, absolutely. That's exactly. And even as I sit here today talking to you, this is 180 degrees from where I would have imagined I should or would be growing up in the suburbs of Toronto. Never any aspiration to go into comedy, and uh, never any aspiration to even be in show business. I just, I just. Uh, I just ended up here. Well, that's amazing. And then I went out to California and I got seen and I was doing stand-up and, and I noticed that some of the other stand-ups were getting into sitcoms. So I went and read, I went to, I had an agent and I told him to get me a, a meeting at MTM because MTM was famous for all their sitcoms. You know, right. Mary Tyler Moore at the time being the most famous sitcom and they were doing a bunch. And I, I said a general meeting with the casting director would be great. And I sat down with the casting director and I said, you know, I'm doing this. I've done the Young Comedian special and here's some tapes of me doing this and come to the comedy store and see me. And I think I should do a sitcom. And she goes, well, do you think you can act? And I said, I don't know. And she gave me the side to read, this little few pages of uh, uh, material. And I read this and it was all, I didn't understand what I was reading, but it was all this medical terminology. And she goes, oh, that's very good. Come down the hall. And I go down the hall and I meet with Bruce Paltrow and Mark Tinker, who I had no idea who they were. And I read it, and they went, "Thank you." And I went home, and my wife said, "How did it? How did it go?" And I go, "I'll tell you something. I don't think it went well." But uh, they had me audition for this sitcom, and and I'll be honest with you, it's 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 so fucking bad. It's not funny. There's nothing funny about it. <laughs> and I sat in this room. I got halfway through the scene, not one fucking laugh. And they told me to that they've heard enough. And then I get a call from my agent that they loved me and I could start Monday. <laughs> and you didn't and, know it wasn't a comedy? I didn't know what it was. <laughs> and it, it turns out it was Saint Elsewhere, <laughs> which was this brilliant, great drama that I'm so thrilled to have been part of. You know, this is where Denzel Washington came out of this and a lot of great actors. Well, I've heard Dr. of guys Bates, fa- Tim Robbins falling into shit had, and coming out smelling like a rose, but you're, you're, you're... Absolutely. So I ended up doing, I ended up for six years on this great drama. But at the same time, I was going on uh, The Tonight Show and doing my, my, my stand-up up and touring all over because it was this huge ensemble cast so we had you know three days a week and the four days I was working and selling out everywhere and they would ask me at MTM they'd, I'd have these meetings where they'd ask me not to go on not to do my stand-up because they thought it was hurting the integrity of the character the show really? was very serious oh yeah because they'd have this Emmy award-winning episode running you know on uh, Wednesday night and then that night I'd be on the Tonight Show with a rubber glove on my head <laughs> And they go, you know, you're ruining. And I would get this. Did uh, you succumb letters. to the pressure? I mean, did you actually sell out? No, no, that? I would never give this up. This oh, is like right. true to who I am. My stand-up is my. 
That's that's me. I shouldn't I shouldn't fixate on, on my genitals so much. I do. You know what? You know I should explain. Well, people who know me and have followed my career throughout the years know why I talk about my genitals so much. Because besides being known as a comedian or an actor or somebody who does voices, I am world renowned for my testicles. They have been written about in papers as being lovely and talented. I can actually make sounds with my testicles. It's not a joke. I was in London two years ago. I recorded with the symphony about a year and a half ago. Yitzhak Perlman fiddled with them. It's not a joke. It's a, it's a, I play them. Oh, the boys are getting requests. You want to know something? I. Honestly, honestly, I, when I'm in the studio, I can do it because they have recording equipment that's high-tech. and I don't think we have it. I mean, I could try, but you have to be... If you're going to... Okay, wait, wait. If, I'm serious, but if you, if you want to hear it, you're going to have to not make a sound because it's not... It's, it's really... No, I'm serious. You've got to be totally silent. You've got to be totally... No. No, you're not going to... If you make even a sound... You're not going to hear it, because I have to concentrate. It's just a, like a high-pitched tone. It's not a... Okay? No, wait. You're not going to... Wait. Wait, wait. Okay, shh. 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 Okay. Please. You, you know what's making me laugh? You people are sitting there seriously waiting for me to make a noise with my nuts. What the fuck is wrong with you people? I can't make a noise with my nuts. How much entertainment do you want for your fucking dollar? You should see yourself saying, shh, honey, we're not going to hear it if you make a noise. What the fuck are you doing? I can't make a noise in my nuts. <laughs> you, know, you should see your faces. There wasn't even a smile on a lot of your faces. Now, this is good, honey. Wait, wait till you hear this. If he's, if he's played with the London Symphony, this is, this is good. This is good. You know where I came up with that idea? That idea. You know, when I was writing for the show, I had no material when I started, so I went out and I fucked around with people just to come up with ideas. And I'm just lucky to be alive that nobody kicked the shit out of me. You know where that came from? I was, a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, I went to the doctor for a physical. And when I got to my doctor's office, he wasn't there. He was homesick, which bothered me because I figured if he can't fix himself, what the fuck am I doing there? But anyway... <laughs> There was another doctor there, an elderly gentleman, who said he'll take the case. Okay, so I said, fine, it's just a physical. So he starts interviewing me and asking me questions. And I realized, he doesn't know me. He doesn't recognize me, doesn't know I'm a comedian, knows nothing about me. And I thought, this is great, I could fuck with him. So <laughs> he takes me in the examining room, he takes me into an examining room, and he says to me, is there anything I should know? <laughs> I don't know why this came out, but I said, um, yeah, there's, um, there's one thing. He said, well, what's that? And I go, well, my... Um, my, uh, my testicles, there's, um, there, there's a tone. <laughs> he says, pardon me? I go, well, there's a, there's a high-pitched tone com coming out of my uh, testicles. Could, could you check that? <laughs> Without even skipping a beat, he goes, fine, drop your pants. And I'm too embarrassed to say I'm only kidding. <laughs> so, so I go, fuck it, I can live through this, right? Not terrible, right? <laughs> so, so like an idiot, I undo my belt, I undo my belt, and I pull down my pants, and I'm standing there naked in front of this man. I'm standing there naked in front of this man, and, and, and from the waist down, and he, he, he got, he got down on, this bothers me, this is disturbing. <laughs> he got down on, 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 on one knee, and, and he listened. 
and he held them like a seashell. He listened to my nuts like a seashell. <laughs> He didn't even smile. He looks up at me and goes, I, I, I don't hear anything. So, <laughs> this, this is how fucked up I am. I couldn't let it go. I said, well, doctor, is it, is it possible that they're light sensitive? And he looks at me like, the fuck are you talking about? I said, well, the only time we hear the tone is at night. You know, my wife and I will be lying in bed in the dark and she'll say, you know, Howie, you left the TV on and I'll go, no, no. <laughs> so, so could you check it? So he, he goes, fine. And you can hear he's pissed off, but he's trying to remain professional. So he turns off the light in the room. It's pitch black in the room. Pitch fucking black in the room. I'm standing there naked from the waist down. And this man, in the dark, in the dark, this man gets down on his knees and listens to my nuts in the dark. Now, I couldn't see him, but I, I knew he was there. Because, because, this is embarrassing, but I knew because his... His, his hair tickled. But anyway, <laughs> so, so I started to go, <laughs> he gets up, turns on the light and says, you're doing that with your mouth. And I went, shit, that's what it is. We're talking to uh, Howie Mandel. You must have run into people that thought that your rubber glove, which was for your your uh, fear of germs, right. what was you were making fun of one of the props from the medical show? Did, did people oh, ever... people think it's from the medical show. Well, I would get <laughs> I would get tons of letters saying I have a bet with my husband that you know Wayne Fiscus, which my was my character's right. name on Saint Elsewhere. I have a bet that it's you're not the same uh, that it's a totally different person's that that idiot we saw on the Tonight Show with the rubber glove on his head. I have a bet with my husband saying those are two different people. And I would, say, and I would write them back saying, well, what, what, are you saying it's not? Or are you saying it is? And I'll say whatever you need me to say so that I, and I'll split the money with you. But people did not ever, a lot of people didn't know it was the same. By the same token, when I started doing Bobby's World, people didn't know that I was the same guy. And my live act is uh, somewhat risque, and I swear, and I don't edit myself, and I, you know, it's an adult show, and always was an adult show. But when Bobby's World was big and on the air, people would bring their kids to my, you know, Howie Mandel is coming. Oh, it's the guy from Bobby, and yeah, sitting right. in the front row, and I'm going, you know, yeah, fuck, fuck this, yeah, fuck yeah, that, right. and fuck, and then you see them, <laughs> they're leaving angry, and I'd go, well, what did you think? You know, I've been doing stand-up since 1978. This is 1987. Right. I want to back up. Okay. Uh, Back to uh, before show business. By the way, when you were talking earlier, you were depicting your vacation as, as just a vacation that turned into show business. All of a sudden, like two weeks later, give me a, a meeting with so-and-so at the SDI. You obviously adapted to Hollywood rather fast, didn't you? Well, I don't know if I adapted fast. I, you know, I just kind of, my whole career is, uh, I don't really blaze a trail. I just seem to follow this path. You know, wherever... Where whatever door opens in front of me, I, I, it's exciting to kind of go through. I didn't. It was a very big culture shock. Show business mm -hmm. is a culture shock, but at the, by the same token, it was exactly what I had been doing. You know, I started in after I was thrown out of school. I was thrown out of school for all the practical jokes that I'm doing now. But well, let's back up some more. You, you're from Canada. I'm born and raised in Toronto, Canada. You were a wise ass in school. You like to get a laugh. You like actually. You no, you, never got a laugh. I like to put people in awkward positions. Right. Uh, my, uh, you must have been, or were you, into Andy Kaufman? 
Because Andy Kaufman. Loved Andy Kaufman. Loved Andy Kaufman because that's about pushing that envelope as far as you could possibly push it. And the humor is not so much in what the comic is saying, but how people are reacting to what the comic is saying. Right. You know, and and then the whole the whole performance becomes theater, you know, rather than just uh, my least favorite kind of comedy. And that's just personal is a joke, you know, a joke. You know, two guys walk into a bar. I really <laughs> like that. I, you know, the first person I became aware of doing this kind of humor was Steve Martin. And Steve Martin is probably my biggest inspiration. But Steve Martin was, when I first saw him, he was a writer, I think, on the, uh, was it the Smothers Brothers show or the Glenn Campbell's? One of those one of those shows. Right. And I saw him in the summer and he came out and they brought him out as one of the writers. He wasn't really known yet. It was, or I guess he was the opening act for the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. And he would come out and do, okay, everybody, I'm now going to do the nose on the microphone routine. And I thought, <laughs> and I, this was hysterical because it was nothing, right? And he made such a big deal about it. But what I found is when I went to school the next day and said, I saw this guy and he was brilliant. His name's Steve Martin. And they go, what did he do? And I told him he did that. And people would stare at me blankly. And I'd go, no, you have to see him. And that's what's funny. You had to see him. You had to see how people reacted to it. Right. You had to, you had to, and, and I love that. And then Andy Kaufman I became aware of after that, where Andy Kaufman would be at the improv even when I, uh, one night I was in Los Angeles and he was at the improv and he was reading from The Great Gatsby until everyone left. And I thought, <laughs> what an amazing, what an amazing night. I was there the night he read The Great, and these people left and they were angry and they thought this is not a show. And they were part of the one of the best shows I've ever seen if you like that level of comedy. Right. And I love that kind of comedy. And I went to, a couple weeks ago, I was in San Diego, California. I went to, I went to uh, SeaWorld. I took my family because, because, because if you take somebody else's family, they don't treat you the same. They don't, they don't. <laughs> but I went to SeaWorld. I like going there because I love fish. I, mean, I, love, I don't love, I mean, I don't love fish. I enjoy watching them and learning. I mean, I don't love them. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't fill up a fish. I wouldn't do that because, <laughs> Because you can't, right? You can't. I mean, fish, do fish have tits? Can we, uh, can I ask that? Fish don't have tits. Do fish have tits? You know what? They don't need them. That would be a waste. But you, but you can't tell because they swim with their chest down. You don't, do they? It would, you know what? They could have nipples, but they don't need the whole, the whole tit would be a waste. But the nipple would be useful because that way you'd be able to tell if it was too, the water was too chilly in the tank, right? That would be, that would, that would be useful, right? I need to warm up the water to look at his goddamn nipples. He's freezing. <laughs> I love my fish. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. I, w I wouldn't do that. Unless it asked me to. Unless it said how he tw twists my nipples. But I wouldn't say that. Anyway, we went to SeaWorld and we saw, you know what? I saw Shamu, the killer whale. Isn't that great? And you know what's weird? I was in Florida about six months ago in Orlando and they have a SeaWorld there and I saw Shamu. <laughs> You'd think I would have seen him on the flight, but no. Big Shot probably has his own deal, right? <laughs> that would be my luck. I'd get a nice aisle seat and a fucking whale would come and sit down right beside me with the cold. And you know how much mucus you can get out of a blowhole. <laughs> why, why do you laugh at that? Do you, do you know how much mucus you can get out of a blowhole? I just said it, but you actually can picture it. Anyway, I bought my son. I'm there with my kids, so I bought him this. I got him this. This is a... Um, Oh, Jacques Cousteau, party of four. Thank you, thank you very much. I didn't ask. I didn't ask. I'm doing, this is all new material. I'm doing a routine about it being a sea creature. But, yeah, but you yelled out dolphin, so you fucked it up. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, though. It doesn't matter. I can move 
I didn't ask. Yes, what is your name? Derek. Derek. What do you, what do, you do, Derek? What do you do? Nothing. Nothing. And is this a family business? Thank you, Derek. This is a dolphin. This is a dolphin, and, and that's, that's a sound the dolphins make. I learned that because my wife says, listen to that, isn't that neat? My wife says, you know what? We can't only go to, to uh, shows, uh, we, to uh, amusement parks and stuff. It's got to be entertaining because we're taking the children, but it also has to be educational. So she makes me sit through these stupid ass, and we have to go to a pavilion, and we watch the film, a 20-minute film on marine biology on these things. That's where I bought this. And, and uh, it was about how marine biologists are studying these things. They can listen to this, this, this sound, decipher it, and communicate with these animals. It's supposed to be the brightest animals in the sea. So I sat there with my wife and kids and watched the whole film. It was a 20-minute film. The whole film sounded like this. For 20 minutes. Do people have any idea how long 20 minutes is? This has been about 30, 35 seconds so far. Soon you're going to know how long 20 minutes is. And you're not going to like me anymore. And like an idiot, I bought this for my son. And my house has sounded like this for three and a half weeks. Until this morning when I said to him, give me that fucking thing. <laughs> he, just, he, just, he just looked up at me because he's, he's just a little guy and I, had to, I, I couldn't just leave. I said, well, I, I, need, I need it for the show. He said, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'll make up a routine where, where it's a sea creature. And he said, but, but what if Derek's there? And he said, there's a good chance, because he has nothing else to do. <laughs> I, I, I just want I just want I don't even know. I was going to say something, but uh, I don't think this gesture matches it. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck I was doing. You know what? This is not the gesture. I don't have anything to say that, that matches this. <laughs> this is probably from something I said a week and a half ago. This is... <laughs> Sometimes my gestures don't match what I'm... You know what? I should apologize right now to the people at home and you people in the theater. If there's anybody here who's hearing impaired, I hope I'm not fucking you up. I, hope, I, don't, want, I don't mean it. <laughs> Howie Mandel is our guest. I go out to record uh, artists uh, stand-up all the time all over the country, and one of the very first things when the performance is done and they walk up to me and go, well, you know, this one part didn't go over that well, and... Or, or somebody, the opening act bombed and the club owner goes, yeah, they want to take that out. I goes, no. I said, you know, the, the whole energy of being in a club for an evening of entertainment, bombing is just as much of, a, of an emotion as going over well. You know, it's part of the experience of being there. So, Well, absolutely. And, and you know, even in my live stand-up now, when I tour, still do 200 dates a year, that's a big part of what I do. You know, and I love that, you know, and people come up to me all the time and they go, I was there the 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 night the girl got up to go to the bathroom and it disturbed the whole the whole evening but that that has become part of what I do you know I like when something doesn't go well or I like when something because that's there's an electricity and there's an energy there and there's a that people know that this is happening now it's never happened before this is I'm using a bad word but this is dangerous it's not really dangerous I mean nobody gets killed doing comedy <laughs> you had to deal with uh, 
rock crowds. You opened for Diana Ross a few times. How does that work? It never works, does it? Opening for it musical acts? It didn't work. I've had I've had good experiences, but mostly bad. But opening for Diana Ross, she was wonderful to me. You know, she really supported me. She had seen me on Merv Griffin. She thought I was very funny, and she wanted me there at Caesar's Palace. And how could you say no? And I was young and didn't know what I was doing. And I show up at Caesar's Palace, and she says to me, uh, not she, but the the stage manager says, "Okay, we need you to do twenty in front of in front of uh, Diana Ross." And I said, "Great." And at that time, I didn't even wear a watch. And she, he goes, you understand what I'm saying? I go, well, why wouldn't I understand? He goes, not 19, not 21, 20 minutes. <laughs> I go, well, I, I don't know how to, I'm not wearing a watch. And she, I worked in front of the curtain, so I couldn't see. There is a clock on, on the side of the stage, but I couldn't see that. So I, I gave the guy 10 bucks, and I said, you know, I need you to signal me and uh, just tap with your foot behind the curtain. The audience won't hear it behind the, when, when you have one minute to go, and then I'll close with my, I got a big one-minute closing that I know it's one minute. So he says, fine, he takes my $10. And I go, and, and it's my opening night, and they, the lights go down, the crowd roars, and they say, ladies and gentlemen, an evening with Diana Ross, and there's a roar that you cannot believe. And if you listened really closely, and nobody did, you can hear now Howie Mandel. And I would walk out <laughs> to a sea of faces of disappointment that it wasn't Diana Ross, and it wasn't R&B music, and it wasn't, it was just this little wandering Jew in the middle of the room. <laughs> and uh, I'd start my uh, my shtick, and, and, and to no avail, nothing, nothing, not a laugh. I was wearing it, they made you wear a suit too. I wasn't allowed to swear, you know, because I was the opening act and it was Caesar's Palace, so, you know, I'm, I'm, which didn't help, just made me uncomfortable because I did swear in my act. But uh, you could look, I have a picture from that night, and there's a picture of me in my suit, and you could see the sweat through my jacket. You could see the soak, <laughs> I was just soaked, and it was silent, and my... Big closing was the, was the glove, and it seemed like an eternity. There's not a laugh. I would finish a line, and it was silent and quiet. And, not a, and, and then finally I hear, as luck would have it, I hear right behind the curtain, I hear. <laughs> and I go, oh, thank God. That's the, the sound I wanted to hear most. You know. And I, So I'm about to wrap it up, and I, and I take out my glove, and I put my glove on my head, and it's just I blow it up to silence to silence i'm thinking this is you know it's one thing to tell a joke and what doesn't go and it doesn't go over that feels bad enough but if you're standing there like an idiot with a rubber glove inflated on your head in a room of silence how do you explain i'm thinking this 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 uh maybe this one's thicker than most of the gloves maybe they're roaring on the outside and i'm just not hearing it and i pop the glove off and there's not a sound and then i go ladies and gentlemen enjoy diana ross and the crowd just roars and erupts and i turn around and they're supposed to page the curtain for me to let me through right i turn around in front of uh, you know 2000 people and it's, and 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 there's somebody holding the curtain shut and i'm going please i got to get through please please i have to get through. please and the guy's going not now not now and the 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 eruption of applause is dying down cuz Diana Ross is not coming out now it's quiet now you can hear me going i have to get out and the guy's going 10 more minutes <laughs> 10 more minutes 10 minutes and i have my big closing i've got 10 more minutes and i turn around and that 10 minutes seems like, uh, even as I speak to you now, it still doesn't seem like it's over. It was the longest <laughs> 10 minutes of my life. And then I just walked off the stage, and then her music started, and it was a great night. And what had happened was I had only done, I was supposed to do 20 minutes. I had only done 10 minutes, and that banging I heard behind me was just one of the dancers walking by. <laughs> it wasn't the signal. And you can't leave early because this show's all time. That's when she gets dressed. That's when the band's in place. And when I say goodnight, the curtain goes up and they start right on time. So I, I was uh, ready to leave 10 minutes early when I heard that banging and it wasn't right. 
And I had to turn around and just, like, it wasn't hell before that 10 minutes. The last 10 minutes was the most horrendous 10 minutes of my life <laughs> to date. Well, I hope but they paid my, well. And then I got called in after a week of this, every night, every, no, I, I didn't get paid well. It it uh, it was really nice to be there, and I got paid. It actually cost me money because I didn't get my food for free, <laughs> and I got something like, uh, you know, I think it was like seventy bucks a show or whatever. I got, you know, there's two shows a night, seven nights a week, and after the first week, I'm called into uh, Diana Ross's office, and uh, I think I'm going to get fired. I'm hoping I'm going to get fired, and she says, "I just have to tell you, Howie, you are so funny." We're holding you over for another two weeks. <laughs> oh, <no>. oh shit! <laughs> Fuck. Two more weeks of hatred, and I would sit in. The, I would just do my show and lie in the fetal position in my room <laughs> all day long, so that nobody, God forbid, anybody from the hotel or any of the guests would see me, because I was just so embarrassed. And I thought uh, that's the the closest I came to leaving comedy. One of the things you're involved with, I, I was going to say, suffer from. I don't know if it's proper. Is uh, compulsive disorders of sorts. So you're so obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah, um, OCD. When now this I know some of it involves germs. You wash yes, your hands uh, a lot, right? Yes, I do. Uh, and I don't shake hands. You don't shake hands. You don't you wash your hands a lot. But what about other things? We talked to Jake Johansson a couple of weeks ago and right. it came as a surprise to me. I brought the subject up because I've done radio shows in my oh, the old days when I did mornings down in Miami. Uh and the phones would light up with these people that say, "Oh yeah, yeah. I I have to uh lock the door 18 times. When I drive down the road, if I see a billboard, I look up and see how many sevens or eights are in it, in the number, and on and on and on. So other than germs, give us an example of some of the rituals you go through. Because uh, before you do, when I was about 13 years old, for some reason, I went through about a year and a half of having an invisible string tied to me. And when I walked into a room, like around a coffee table and sit down, if I left, I had to leave the same way so the string wouldn't get caught. You follow me? Right. Now I do follow you. No, <laughs> I was supposed you would. No, so what are, what are some of the other things you uh, want to uh, share with us uh, you go through? I check the door an inordinate, an inordinate amount of times after it's locked and obviously locked. Mm-hmm. And I'll go back for, I'll be late for wherever I'm going because <laughs> I have to keep checking the door and make sure I locked it. Um, I have to uh, count things. Uh, I just, I like to count everything. I like to know I'm not comfortable unless I know what number. Do you uh, do you count your change and all that stuff a lot in your pocket? I mean, you know, I won't pick up change. I don't touch change. I don't carry change. I try not to even carry money. Money. I carry my own uh, utensils. You know, plastic utensils for uh-huh. restaurant use. I do, I'm a little uh, I'm a little whacked, and I carry. <laughs> uh, I have a lot of pictures of me with my children where I'm wearing a surgical... I'm carrying them, not to be funny, with a surgical mask and rubber gloves. Really? You think it's just a habit that's established itself in your repertoire, or do you really truly believe you'd get a cold or catch germs that way? You know what I'm saying? No. Logically, I understand what that I'm being ridiculous, but I have been diagnosed with OCD. I, I'm in therapy, mm-hmm. and I have been prescribed medication that I do not take. But uh, because I feel like I'm coping somewhat uh, okay with it, and I've been able to in the uh, through the media, like talking to you and talking to and being on television and on my new show, talk about OCD. So people seem to make my life a little more comfortable around me because they're aware, so they don't think I'm a jerk when I won't shake their hands or they uh, they don't offer me drinks out of their uh, 
out of their sodas, and uh, it just makes my life a little bit easier. But uh, so no, I'm a, di- a diagnosed OCD-ian. Shit happens to me even when I don't mean it to happen. Like even public restrooms. You know how now they have those, they have those restrooms that have a faucet with an infrared beam? There's like a, you can put your hand, you don't have to touch knobs and the water turns on. Have you seen those? Yes, well, five years ago, I had never seen anything like that. That were relatively new. This is a true story. I took my wife out to a brand new restaurant in LA. It's a beautiful restaurant. I excused myself to go to the men's room, okay? Now, I'm in the men's room, and there's another guy there, and he finishes before me. And he walks over to the sink, and I hear him at the sink. He's mumbling to himself. He's going, fuck. <laughs> and I walk over, and I go, what's wrong? He goes, there's no fucking knobs. I said, well, there's got to be a way to turn on the water. There's gotta... He goes, there's no knobs. No, I go, sir, they had a budget here. It's a beautiful place. It's not like they ran out of money and said, you know what? Put in the sink, fuck the knobs. They didn't do that. He goes, well, there's no knobs. He wouldn't... And he wouldn't move. And I wasn't thinking. I'm just trying to be a good Samaritan. I remembered in school sometimes we had the water fountains with a, like a foot pedal that turned, or maybe there's a trigger underneath. So without even thinking, from behind this man, I take my leg, I wrap it around in front of him, and under the sink, I'm looking for a trigger. At the same time, this guy puts his hand underneath the faucet and goes, you got it. Keep going. Like an idiot, I'm going, thinking, what the fuck is this? What kind of stupid shit is this? And then he finishes and goes to leave. I go, where the fuck are you going? I have to wash my hands. Get your ass back here. See, he comes back. I'm pissed. He's pissed. He puts his hands on my waist takes his legs, wraps them around me. And I'm washing my hands, he's got his legs around me, I'm thinking, this fucking buddy system ass place, this is stupid. At this moment, another man comes in and sees us. He just stops and goes, what the fuck are you guys doing? We're so pissed, we don't answer, we just walk out, thinking joke's on him, he's alone. We're talking to Howie Mandel, let's talk about St. Elsewhere for a second. That's a... Were you surprised when you got into television because it was your first experience, right? Right. Uh, how much of a hurry up and wait thing it is? I mean, to there's a lot of to actually around. be on the set. Yeah. Not so much for stand up. When I first got well, when I was doing Saint Elsewhere, obviously because yeah. you know that's that's takes seven days to do one hour of television. But uh, as a stand up, there's no hurrying up and waiting. I, I'm not. I'm. I'm amazed at how much of a business it actually is. You know, when you're in show business, whether you're in comedy or whatever, it's just a business and, and, and just the marketing aspect of I'm fascinated by. You know, I come from this. I come from the carpet business. And uh, that's what I was doing before I started this. And I'm, I'm amazed at how uh, similar the carpet business is to uh, comedy. Really? In the way of, well, yeah, because all I had to do, I really know nothing about carpet. I'm, I'm colorblind. And I don't know that much about carpet and fiber, but I was a really good salesman. And w- the way I did it and the way I think everybody does it in business was I just had to entertain these people. And as if I entertained them, then they allowed me to – then they would buy the carpet. And by the same token, I have to entertain these people that I'm in front of on stage. And that's why they'll continue and hopefully continue to buy the ticket or to turn on the TV show. So I'm basically doing the same thing. You know, as a carpet guy, I was constantly trying to entertain well, anything the, to not speak about carpet. So you look at show business as a business. It is a business. It is a business, and you're just marketing yourself. I found talking to comics uh, that is the hardest thing for them to do is get a real a picture of themselves. In other words, every, everybody needs a voice. 
they have to find what their voice is. You know, they they have to get a perspective from the audience's perspective. A lot of comics don't know what they look like. They don't know how they come off on stage. You follow what I'm saying? I can't hear your voice. No, I... I, I... <laughs> they can tell jokes, but they don't know what it is. You've got to combine your persona with your material. You got to well, know... Well, here's the... I was lucky, and I do know, I do know what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I was lucky in the sense that I did not set out to be a stand-up comic. And the fact that I got up on stage and I got up on stage and whatever happened to me was just truly, purely me. You know, at the beginning, and I think I've changed throughout the years, I was much more uh, nervous and uncomfortable. And when I say nervous and uncomfortable, I uh, I relish that that discomfort, you know, in the way that people like to go on a roller coaster and come real close to death. And, right. you know, I was hyperventilating. It was really scary, but it was thrilling. And they would laugh, and I didn't understand why they would laugh. And hence, I would go, what, what, what are you laughing at? And that became my thing. And then I didn't know what to do, and I knew that I didn't know what to do. So I pulled a rubber glove out of my out of my bag, and I, and, and I pulled that over my head. And then whatever happened, and that became, my persona became my act. And you find that the people that make it and the people that are more... I get accessible in this business are people the audiences relate to because you can go to any town in America and Canada and anywhere and find 10 different comedy clubs with four or five different comics playing but maybe you don't know who they are right. uh, the ones who pop are the ones who are true to themselves and what I mean by true to themselves that is their personality Anybody can get up and tell a joke. Anybody around the office is is hears a joke somewhere, reads a joke on the internet and tells jokes. Why doesn't everybody? make it a career and anybody who tries to make it a career kind of break through. I think when it's true to yourself and you're lucky enough to have an uh, um, an audience identify with you, then it works for you. And I guess what I'm trying to say here is that is who you are. If you look at George Carlin, I mean, he is a very introspective, thinking, smart guy who is a wordsmith. And that's who he is when he's off stage too. He doesn't just tell jokes. That is George Carlin's view on people, right. on, on, on the world. You know, and that's why it works. And you look at uh, somebody like Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor, that was he came from a very painful upbringing. And these characters that he delivered on stage and the way he talked, that was him. These are people he knew. This is how he viewed it. That was Richard Pryor. Wasn't, he wasn't telling you a joke he heard. That was who he is. And you look at anybody, that's who they are. You know, anybody who's really made it, that's their sensibility and that's who they are. And you could say, okay, Steve Martin is a very serious, intellectual guy. But if you look at, if you really break down his comedy, it was pretty serious and intellectual on a, you know, he broke down what silly is. Oh, yeah. Well, I I always got the impression that uh, what I admired about Steve Martin so much was he got up in front of this huge audience and literally made fun of them. He made fun of the audience, and he made fun of what their perception of him was and what he was supposed to be and the star he was supposed to be, and he turned that all inside out. And he made fun of the comedy itself. Right. You know, it was, you know, the wild and crazy guy. It was, you know, it was the arrow through the head and the balloons. You know, the fact that it is very intellectual to think that there are people out there who really believed on a very serious level on or uh, that this is really funny. If I show up to the party with the arrow <laughs> in my head, wait till they get a load of me. Right. And he was the guy who turned that on its ear and said, and I thought brilliantly, that's why it's funny. And then people who didn't get it, which were the few, I mean, he became huge, obviously, but the people who didn't get it would say, well, it's not funny that he puts an arrow in his head. And I'd go, but that's why it's funny, because it's not funny. And that's, that's kind of deep, isn't it? You know, a lot of people come to me and they say, Steve, how can you be so fucking funny? Well, 
There's a secret to it. There's no big deal. I'll be honest with you. Uh, before I come out, I put a slice of bologna in each one of my shoes. So when I'm on stage, I feel funny. People come to me. They say, Steve, Martin, is there some way I could be funny too? Well, here's a couple of jokes I like to pass on to the crowd. And these are jokes you can play on your friends if you enjoy the good practical joke. This is, uh, these are good ones. Um, next time you go out with your friends, before you go, you secretly put an atom bomb in your nose. And when you get there, you pretend like you're going to sneeze, you know. You give it the old, and you set off the bomb. It's funny. There's another bit I like to do at parties. Uh... Next time you're invited to an elegant dinner party, you arrive late, so everyone's there, you walk in and throw all the food on the floor. <laughs> I did this at the last party I went to, and it was about uh, six years ago. So, uh, how many people ski? Oh, perfect. Um, here's a joke you can do on a ski lift if you like uh, that kind of thing. You know how people engrave their names on their skis? So when they get stolen, uh, they know who they got them from. They call you up and thank you. Ted Robinson, thank you very much. So, next time you get on a ski lift with a stranger, you look over and you get his name. And you wait till you get about halfway up, and you suddenly turn to him and pretend like you've known him all your life, and you call him by his name, and they just can't figure out who you are. You know, it's just so much fun. I did this last winter to a guy, and he thought I was nuts, really. Uh, his name was Rental. Howie Mandel is our guest. There's a guy, uh, you live in Los Angeles. Are you familiar with Phil Hendry? Love him. The talk show host? Yeah, for people. Yes. Uh, he's on XM, but for people who don't know who Phil is, he, he has a talk show, but Phil plays the part of the host and the caller. And the caller. And, he, and I, I'm just uh, constantly amazed on how, why he doesn't run out of ignorant people who are listening that call in, taking it all seriously, and get all pissed off and yell and scream over these ridiculous subjects. And he proves that all the time, that people, uh, you know, it's, and that's what Steve Martin did, in my opinion, as you absolutely. described it, you know. Absolutely. Now, Phil you, is absolutely brilliant. And, and, and he'll, he'll uh, people get so angry, so <laughs> angry at the most ridiculous thing. I remember one he did right, at, uh, right after uh, 9-11. He, had, uh, he was on his show, and he was obviously hosting the show. And then he called in himself as a supermodel who was angry that uh, because uh, they wouldn't allow her to um, to pose at Ground Zero, she thought it would be good for the people and good for the you know and 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 so he made this call and the, his switchboard just lit up with people just so angry that this supermodel thought that you know she should be able to pose at Ground Zero and I thought first of all don't you know that this is a joke oh that- but the fact that they don't know it's a joke is what makes it great. And that's my, I love that. That humor is my favorite humor. You know, I've, I've always said, you know, once you start w- with people uh, telling jokes, I don't like it. I don't like jokes. I don't like when uh, somebody says, this is the funniest thing. Wait till you hear this. Well, mm-hmm. already I'm turned off. You know, first of all, let me be the judge of, a, of it being the funniest thing. And also don't tell me, if you tell me it's a joke and there's no, it's not grounded in reality at all, I lose it. When a duck and a rabbi walk into a bar, I already am, I'm, I'm three rungs down on the enjoyment field right. because I know that a duck and a rabbi never walked into a bar. But if I think it really happened, 
or I watch people really react to something, or it's in my hidden cameras or that Phil Hendry kind of thing, or people reacting to Steve Martin to, or, or Andy Kaufman, then I go, I'm hysterical. Uh, you're one of those guys I sort of admired in a way in high school that had the nerve to get up there and put someone in an awkward situation just to see what would happen. <laughs> right. You know, I was always I too shy to do that. You know? To me, you know, a lot of comics go for the laugh. <laughs> and 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 I there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's what we're in the business for. But I uh, I find awkward silence to be just the most wonderful uh, sound in the world. Not You're, just silence, awkward silence. Right. Six years on Saint Elsewhere, I got the feeling they always say, well, you know, comedy is one way to let the pain out, and all comedians are, are potential great actors and all that rap. But uh, I get the impression you really enjoyed being taken seriously. Yeah, I think that a lot of comedians are, uh, you know, I have a serious side and I enjoy acting. And acting has been a great foundation for what dramatic acting. And that was the best college I could have attended with St. Elsewhere, surrounded by the actors. Tim Robbins, I think that was his first job. And Denzel, obviously, as I mentioned before, came out of there. And being surrounded by these great directors and actors have given me such a great background in what I do comedically today in the sense that even in these hidden camera pieces and all, I, I approached those as an actor and they, they gave me great tools. And But though I think the dramatic acting, people say, what do you like better, comedy or drama? You know, I think a lot of people can do drama. I'm not knocking it, but whatever skill you have in doing drama, it's the same skill in doing comedy. You know, you, you, you uh, create a situation and it's how you react to the situation. But reacting in the vacuum of uh, film or television comedically um, is so much harder than doing it dramatically. What is creating more emotion? Would you make someone cry or would you make them laugh? Laugh. Laugh is such a harder emotion. I think it's harder to, I think it is harder to laugh than to cry. I don't think you have to be an actor. I think you could sit in a room with somebody and, uh, create feelings that will make them cry or memories that will make them cry or somebody a lot of people can just sit in a room and make themselves cry right. but laughter is something that uh, that's a really tough emotion it's a real tough emotion you know you can go to a concert and see somebody uh, play music and a song can make the audience cry and then after every song they applaud after every song but go to a comedy show and they're eliciting physically, physical laughter as hard as tiring for over an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, however long you're on stage. Every 30 seconds, people are roaring. They're vocal. Their whole bodies are heaving. This is a lot to elicit from people or to expect to elicit from people. So that's, you know, the fact that you can do that or even are in a room where it's being done is, it's amazing. And nobody has ever said, you know, crying is the best medicine, you know. <laughs> I really entertain myself, and I really have the best time in that room, and hopefully somebody comes on that journey with me and has a good time. Doing stand-up, I'm having the time of my life. I laugh a lot, and uh, if other people, if you're lucky enough to, uh, to enjoy it too, then, or if I'm lucky enough to have other people enjoy it also, then I'm, then I'm blessed. You know, I go to, uh, to comedy clubs all the time and drop in, and I'll see people on amateur night, and I'll be sitting with other people, and they go, what the hell? Why the hell does this guy think he's funny? Well, nobody's there on their own accord. Everybody's up there because somebody told them they were funny, whether right. it was at the dinner table and it was their Uncle Milton said you should be there. You just have to be lucky. That's the luck of the draw, that your sensibility and your sense of humor, you know, seems to flip a switch in somebody else, and enough people, not just one or two people in the room, but you know, a good portion of that room. So I feel pretty blessed that I've been able to do this. Well, Howie, you're throwing a lot of switches, and we appreciate that. Well, and thanks for spending time with us. I can't wait to see where you take us next time. All right. Talk to you later. 
Howie Mandel. I hope you enjoyed that. And next week, another guest. Don't forget, tell your friends. If you like what you hear, it's sunnyfox.podbean.com. That's S-O-N-N-Y-F-O-X.podbean, like D-E-A-N, dot com. And until then, thanks for listening.